Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of Asley Ecocast. We're happy to be sharing with you the audio from Asley Spotlight Series, which feature moderated conversations with Asley members who have produced new critical and creative work in the environmental humanities. Episodes follow a theme and highlight publicly engaged scholarship. This special episode is the first of the series, Human and Non-Human Relations, recorded on March 19, 2021, and features Laura Barbas Roden and Heather Swan as co-hosts, and panelists Amy Nizukamatatil, Patricia Vieira, Sarah Garagosian, and Callum Angus. The next episode in the series, Waterworks, will be held on Friday, April 16th at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, and you can register to virtually attend that event by visiting asley.org. The audio for that episode will also be released as a special episode of EcoCast next month. Our warmest welcome today to this Asley Spotlight on new work in the environmental humanities and eco-criticism. I'm Laura Barbas Roden, Professor of Modern Languages at Wofford College, and I'm proud to be with Bethany Wigan, the co-president of Asley. For those of you joining an ASLI event for the first time, an extra hearty welcome from our community. We're a professional organization that seeks to inspire and promote intellectual work in the environmental humanities and arts. We are so glad for you to join us today and invite you to help sustain and further our work by becoming an ASLI member. It's our pleasure to host this exciting live event in our Spotlight series. Bethany and I and members of the ASLI's Executive Committee have envisioned and designed this new series to elevate ASLI members' work in creative writing, scholarship, and public engagement. And we're really excited to foster connections with new public audiences through these virtual events. As we get started, I want to extend special thanks to the Penn Program for Environmental Humanities for co-sponsorship of this event and for visionary work in public engagement. Special thanks to Angela Ferranda of the PPEH, as well as to Amy McIntyre, ASLI's amazing managing director. This event would not be possible without the work of the Spotlight Planning Committee and the Selection Committee, and we extend gratitude for their labor, expertise, and time. By way of logistical information, we'll ask that you remain on mute, and we'll have time for questions later. We'll ask that you use the chat then or the raised hand function on your reactions button to indicate you have a question. And please try to keep your questions concise since we have only brief minutes together. Amy will help staff the controls and waiting room in the event that you're dropped inadvertently from the meeting. So it's my great good fortune to introduce our guest moderator, Heather Swan. Heather's nonfiction has appeared in Eon, Belt, Catapult, Edge Effects, Isle, Minding Nature, The Learned Pig, Resilience Journal, and Terrain. Her book, Where Honeybees Thrive, Stories from the Field, from Penn State Press, won the Sigurd F. Olson Nature Writing Award. A collection of her poems, A Kinship with Ash, published by Terrapin Books, was published in 2020 and just out. She teaches environmental literature and writing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Heather will introduce our panelists, and then she and I will moderate conversation and dialogue after they each speak briefly. Heather, it's all yours. Thank you. It's great to be here and thank you all for coming and thank you everyone for organizing. Just amazing uh, to be here today. Um, I'll be um, just reading short bios um, of all of our uh, guests and, and then we will um, hear a little bit from them. So first I'm introducing Amy Um and she's the celebrated author of four books of poetry, Oceanic, Lucky Fish, At the Drive-In Volcano and Miracle Fruit. 
The New York Times bestselling World of Wonders is her first foray into nonfiction. Her awards include a Guggenheim and an NEA fellowship. She is professor of English and teaches environmental literature and poetry in the MFA program at the University of Mississippi. Amy. Hi, everybody. I'm so glad to um, see you today. I'm coming at you live from Oxford, Mississippi on a kind of cloudy, um, overcast day. Uh, but spring is in the air here. The redbuds are out in full force. Magnolia trees are budding. Um, so it's like so close to spring here. Um, I just wanted, we have five minutes each um, before we dive in. And um, I just wanted to say, um, I think there's a there should be um, a, um, a slide showing. Um, Amy, is that up? Okay. Um, in the meantime, um, this is my book, um, World of Wonders. And I'm holding up, for those who can't see, I'm holding up um, my book. And I wanted to just show you um, many of the essays in here. These are short essays, a collection of 30 essays. And um, if you can see the little axolotl um, illustration that I have on there, the I had about... 300 um, or 200, I'm sorry, plants and animals that I just loved and adored. And um, I narrowed it down to 30 plants and animals that I just was so curious about. And, you know, I, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. And I just never saw anybody that looked like me outside, you know? I mean, the things that I I read, John Muir, Thoreau, of course, Annie Dillard, Terry Tempest Williams, Rachel Carson. Um, and I love those. And I teach those now here at the University of Mississippi um, in environmental writing and in and environmental literature classes. But there were just simply no Asian Americans, or at least not that I had access to. And I know that there were um, Asian American authors out there. So I guess I point my finger out at the publishers and other professors, you know, why were these books not taught? Why were these books not published? Um, and I'm hoping that in 2021, we uh, are opening the table a little bit wider to who whose stories can be told um, and who gets to be outside safely and tell about it. And why, why is that? Um, so this little um, slide here, if you could take a look, yes, that is four-year-old me. And a question that I asked my students is, um, what brings you comfort from the natural world? Where do you feel your shoulders fall a little bit? Where do you um, feel safest? I know for me, that's I, I very purposely chose that picture. That's me and my parents' rose garden in the suburbs of Chicago. But it still is the place where I feel the most at home. Um, and they're retired now in Central Florida. But walking with them in their garden is the place where I feel the most relaxed. And um, you know, my mother's from the Philippines. My father is from India. And I witnessed as a young girl, I didn't have the vocabulary for it, but I witnessed people making fun of their accents. You know, my mother is a doctor or a retired doctor. Um, and, you know, I would routinely see cashiers tell her, like, speak English. I don't understand your words, you know, when she was obviously speaking English. And I didn't, you know, she always held up her head high. My father always held his head up high, but they were constantly mocked um, for their accents. Um, they were constantly told, go back to where you came from. And, you know, I didn't plan this at all, but you can see the horrific events that happened in Atlanta. What happens when you constantly keep 
um, Asian Americans out of stories of the outdoors when you just don't see them, when you don't hear them, and when you dehumanize them. So my hope is that with this collection of 30 plants and animals, with the little snippets of memoir in between, is that people get to see, yeah, Asian Americans love the outdoors and um, we're here too. So let's just, let's, um, let's give a chance for everybody to tell their stories of the outdoors because it's 2021, not 1951. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, really important um, message right now, especially. Um, Patricia Vieira is professor of Spanish, Spanish and Portuguese at Georgetown University and a senior researcher at the Center for Social Studies at the University of Coimbra. She's the author of States of Grace, Utopia in Brazilian Culture. In addition to the following, the forthcoming The Mind of Plants has co-edited Portuguese Literature and the Environment and the Language of Plants, Science, Philosophy and Literature and The Green Thread, Dialogues with the Vegetal, vegetal World. Patricia? Um, so, hi everyone. Um, what you're seeing is actually uh, the website of the Mind of Plants. And um, the Mind of Plants uh, and myself are thrilled to be here and be part of this first episode of the Asley Spotlight. And I would like to start by thanking the organizers of this event. And it's, it's really a pleasure to share uh, this virtual room with, with everyone else and, and with such uh, great authors and, and colleagues. So uh, what I'll do is just briefly sum up what The Mind of Plants is about. And it's, it's a book that I'm editing with a biologist, Monica Gagliano, and a literature scholar and a poet, uh, John Ryan. And beyond the three of us, the book has more than 50 other contributors. So I am actually here today as the representative of a kind of a collective, so to speak. And Monica, John, and I, we have co-edited two other books before that Heather mentioned, uh, The Green Threads and The Language of Plants. And both of these books were academic books about the relationships that uh, are established between human and, uh, humans and plants in different ways. And with The Mind of Plants, uh, we build on, on these previous publications, but uh, our goal as editors was to do something different this time. And The Mind of Plants is really not an academic book. Uh, it's a book um, that includes 40 brief chapters. And these chapters are historical accounts, narratives, reflections, lyrical essays, and, and much more. And it also includes 14 poems on various plants and their connections to the authors. And what we did to put the book together is uh, we asked authors from a very wide variety of fields. We talked to artists, writers, ethnobotanists, anthropologists, literary scholars uh, to select a plant. And this plant would work as a kind of a, a guiding thread in their interpretation of what the mind of plants uh, is and the ways in which a plant mind or plant minds have impacted these authors' lives and these authors' work. And so the book is an anthology and we have chapters and poems about all sorts of plants, about plants that are very common in North America and in Europe, such as the oak, the linden tree or the pine tree. We have chapters about plants that humans have domesticated and consumed and eaten for millennia like uh, the apple tree, the olive tree, 
wheat, corn, cacao, uh, coffee, tea. Uh, we have chapters and poems about plants linked to aesthetics and to religious practices uh, like the rose or the banyan tree. And we have also a few chapters on mind-altering plants and uh, on the link of these plants to indigenous communities all over the world. Um, some examples are peyote, cannabis, ayahuasca, and so on. And we even have plants in the book that I at least had really never heard of, such as the ugly hornwort, which is a, apparently a tiny plant that can be found uh, in several herbaria throughout the world. So the book really has a plant for everyone uh, and for everyone's taste. And uh, what we did is we decided to um, organize all the essays and all the poems alphabetically by common plant name. And the idea was to really highlight the protagonism of the plants themselves in the book. Uh, so our essayists and the poets, the artists in the book, uh, they chose the plants that they were going to write about, but to a certain extent, uh, the plants also chose them. And so as editors, uh, we saw the anthology as the kind of the outcome of a collaboration between the authors, uh, the human authors and the plants themselves. And all of these chapters and poems um, are a collection of personal narratives. And the chapters are filled with experiences, with anecdotes, with musings, uh, but they also offer uh, insights into the different meanings and dimensions of the mind of plants by these authors who, who live and work with plants on a daily basis. Um, so as I said, what you're seeing on your screen is the website of the project. So if you're interested in it, you can always take a look at some excerpts, uh, some videos by the authors talking about the specific plant they wrote about. And there's also information about each plant um, that, that uh, the authors gave us. Uh, I also wanted to use this opportunity to just let you know that uh, we are, the editors are organizing a symposium on April 9th, which is actually April 8th uh, US time, but April 9th um, Australian time uh, on, on the book. So the symposium is, is free and it's open to the public. So I'll just put the link to the symposium in the chat. So anyone who's interested can, can have a look and can see if that's something they would like to participate in. Everyone's uh, really welcome to, um, to be a part of it. So thanks everyone. Thank you so much. Um, so our next author is Sarah Jiragosian, who is the author of the poetry collections, Queer Fish, The Death Spiral, as well as co-editor with Virginia Conchin of Marvels of the on the Floor, How to Assemble a Book of Poems. And she teaches at the University of Albany. So, um, Sarah? Thank you so much, Heather, and thank you so much to Asley for putting this on. I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, so my book is called The Death Spiral. And if you look at the left hand of your screen, um, you can see the death spiral in action. Um, it actually refers to a courtship ritual among raptors, um, locking talons in midair. They cartwheel toward earth, risking death until determining when or if to let go. If they survive the stunt, they validate the fitness of their potential mate. If not, the test can end in a fatal collision with the earth. Um, you can think of it as the ultimate first date. 
So written during the years of the Trump era and the consequent exacerbation of xenophobia, homophobia, racism, sexism, and the sixth mass extin extinction, the death spiral is a conceit for our fraught political times and the sense of precarity that I experienced as a queer woman married to an immigrant. Like the Eagles in their precarious death dance, we are each of us mutually dependent upon one another, entangled, and yet survival in this age, the Anthropocene, may be a practice of letting go, learning a position to one another, and the earth that is less rapacious. For me, it is a practice of letting go of the world as I have known it. The death spiral is part love letter, part death notice to the earth and its creatures. It is also a source for sources of resilience, a search for sources of resilience in the queer imaginary and animal ontologies. The death spiral asks what it means to be a human animal in our age, to be at once a meddler, a tinkerer, a destroyer, a killer, as well as a rehabilitator and steward. It is addressed to those who are interested in rethinking our role in the natural world from a position of dominance to one of coexistence and reimagining our planetary citizenship as one defined by an ethics of responsibility towards one another, the earth and its creatures. A response to the Anthropocene, the death spiral also asks what is nature, in ironic quotes, but something of us and beyond us. It is the incarcerated bittern so isolated from her own species that she falls in love with the zoo director, the sea cucumbers slick with oil, the smoke stack studded sky, the scientist toying with the extinct mammoth's DNA. Both in this collection and in my volunteer work as a wildlife rehabber, I'm interested in how animals can serve as muses, teachers, and agents of cultural intervention. If climate change and the extinction crisis dramatize the limits of the imagination, I wish to explore how animals can help to recall us to the embodied, communicative, psychic, and sensory material out of which the imagination makes and transforms meaning. Embodiment, for example, teaches us about the measure of one's biological limits and potentialities, as well as the fact that the measure varies from body to body, from species to species. For most humans without technological aids, this means a peripheral eye span of approximately 120 degrees of arc, a sense of smell 10,000 times less acute than that of a dog, and a taste receptivity to sweetness that some animals, such as felines, simply do not possess. There is no monolithic world, just as there is no monolithic animal, and many animals inhabit worlds that extend beyond the foreshortened world of the human, such as that of the platypus, who senses his prey through the electroreceptive sensors of his bill. So many of my forays into these questions sprang from my work with injured raptors, which has taught me about negotiating power and vulnerability, about communicating through embodied presence in non-threatening ways, for example, no eye contact or sudden movements. Um, that work helped me to think through the possibilities and limits of human-animal intersubjectivity when writing my collection. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. And finally, we have Callum Angus. Cal, you go by Cal. Cal Angus, who is a trans writer and editor currently based in Portland, Oregon. His work has appeared in... Um, uh, Natural Root, maybe? I'm sorry, I've never seen this um, abbreviation before, but West Branch, LA Review of Books, Catapult, The Common, Seventh Wave Magazine, and elsewhere. He has received support from the Lambda Literary and Signal Fire Foundation for the Arts and holds an MFA from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He edits the journal Smoke and Mold, and his first book of stories, A Natural History of Transition, is forthcoming from Menomonee Press in April 2021. 
Cal. Thank you, Heather, and thank you, Asley and Patricia, Sarah, and Amy. Um, it's really nice to be able to come together with all of you and talk about words, nature, and stories after a couple of very painful days for our Asian American friends uh, and our country as a whole. So thank you. Um, without further ado, the trans body is considered unnatural. Its changes supposedly go against nature with few in mainstream literature, medicine, or history acknowledging that history that nature is nothing but change. My aim isn't to show that trans people are natural, but to illuminate the many ways in which nature and the environment are trans in their very essence. A Natural History of Transition, my book, was originally going to be a work of nonfiction, exploring instances of transition and fluid gender in nature. But this direction felt like it presupposed a divide between the human and the non-human, implicitly arguing that trans could only be natural because of the abundant instances in nature available to reveal the lie of our rigid human genders. And it also seemed to rely too heavily on natural history as a rational chronological discipline without examining its deep contradictions and colonial path to scientific fact. It could be said that searching for instances of transition in nature actually robs us of our power of metaphor, even though at first glance, it might seem to be giving us more bases for comparison. Take for example, Halaclona, the sea sponge pictured here in this slide, for whom gender means little. Its special power is that if it's forced through a sieve so that all of its cells are dispersed and it's like so many beads spilled, up, spilled on the floor, dead we might call it, its cells can then re-aggregate and find one another and it can become a whole organism again. What is more trans than the ability to dissolve the oneness of you and then reconstitute groping in the dark after great turmoil? When I moved to fiction to explore these ideas, I realized that I'd been writing all along these stories that were a sort of digestion and reconstitution of all the transformation metaphors and myths I'd been fed throughout a lifetime of consuming stories about the transformative power of nature and hormones, transformation reincarnated and remixed. Throughout many of these stories included here, I'm interested more in the characters' relationships with the physical and built environment than I am in their psychology. And I think there's room for more fictional works that explore these relationships as we move forward. Relationships with geology, with the vast currents of air and water that swirl above and below us, with the networks of mycelium that stretch for contorted miles beneath our feet. I think those relationships could deal with some more fictional unpacking. And I don't see a reason why trans characters aren't a good place to start with our own unique concerns about being born and created, uh, nature and nurture, preservation and display. And I'll just finish with reading a short excerpt uh, from one of the stories within. It's called The Moon Snail, and it reimagines Gertrude Stein's time at the Woods Hole Marine Biological Lab in 1893, where she studied uh, embryology before turning to poetry afterwards. She found herself using the, way, using the lab's way of looking on other things, light, silverware, the drape of a dress, fallen down barns. A poet makes science out of everything the scientist ignores. She tried opening her viewfinder wider, found she could make a study of the folds of fabric in a skirt, the slatted fences, the slats left open, the kettle's curves, 
She grasped the space between the words of fisherman's speech, the rocking boats, how frightening the amount she could miss. Once in a while, she'd be waiting her turn at the nets or on the beach alone, and everything would stick, slow down to freezing, and then come unglued. So easy to separate things from what made them separate, from what made separate thingness desirable. All could be strung along the necklace of thingness, an abacus of those and thises. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cal. And I think we're going to have some questions now. Yeah, thank you all so much for um, for what you shared for the uh, gorgeous images, and I'm seeing some silent applause. And uh, we'll we'll join uh, thanking all four of you for your words, and Heather for those introductions. Uh, we'll take the time. Uh, Heather and I have prepared a couple of questions, but also want to invite our panelists if there are things you would like to ask each other as we respond, um, please do. And then uh, for the audience, if you would queue up questions that you have. You're welcome to put them in the chat uh, or to indicate in the chat that you have a question so that Heather and I can call on you uh, and let you ask that in your own voice. Um, so I'll start and, and circle back to some of um, each of you touched on this in some way, but I wonder if you might elaborate a little. My question is around the, the generosity that I see in the work that I read from you and in the words that you've shared today. And I wonder what you hope your readers will perceive through their encounters with the worlds and words you share, uh, because it, it seems to me that you're extending um, to an audience uh, a gift of, of imagination. I'll, I'll go first. I didn't, I didn't know who's I wanted to be playing, give a chance. Um, you know, I mean, really, it's, it's always hard to say like, oh, my hopes for this book is Blank, because honestly, my book was released in the middle of a pandemic, and this has already gone beyond all of my hopes and dreams for what who this book could reach. I just assumed it was going to be swept under the rug. Um, but the most miraculous thing happened is that I think we've been feeling so isolated from each other, and people have read, um, have turned to books, not, not just my book, but turned to books in general to feel that kind of connection. And my hope in particular with what I'm trying to do in World of Wonders is that people encounter a creature like the axolotl, for example. Um, maybe they ha have not had experience with one or have not ever seen one before, but my hope is that they feel tender towards things that they haven't experienced directly before, as well as some of the more common animals like a monarch butterfly. So that in turn, that shows that you don't have to have experience, for example, with Iraqi children to feel tenderness towards Iraqi children. You should be able to um, translate care and concern for plants and animals that you've never seen before to the human world as well and to show that we're all really connected. And in that way, I hope that we all feel tenderness towards each other and to ourselves as well. Because we, I think we've come out of a year where there was so much violence and hate and just fear of people that are different. And my hope is that we see how similar we truly are while appreciating the differences. Thank you, Amy. And any of the, Sarah, I see you unmuted. Yes. Um, yeah, I agree with Amy. I think, you know, the, the question of animal representation um, is always fraught in a Western context. Um, you know, we've seen the ways in which um, certain people's minorities have been um, tied to um, 
you know, racist and sexist and homophobic projects. And we're living in a time in which we're seeing the effects of racism, xenophobia, homophobia in the political sphere in really, you know, a dramatic fashion. Um, and so I think animals, um, at least in my book, are a way to kind of think through, um, you know, the uh, questions of embodiment, what it means to represent a creature with a different um, sensorium and life worlds than our own and, and think about questions of justice. How do I do justice to the animalized other? Um, and, and how can um, animals teach us not just about our environment, but also about culture? Thank you. Yeah, perhaps I can pick up on what Sarah just said, because I think a lot of what she said about animals would also work for plants. And, and it's also uh, what we aim at, if, if there is a name to any book, but uh, what we hope for, I think, is really a better word for the book, is really uh, in, in the mind of plants, the contributors show that plants have a mind of their own. And, and this has been a part of, you know, indigenous stories about plants, a part of literature, a part of poetry, and even a part of, of religion for a long time. And, and I think our contributors, just they just show this in a very creative way that plants are not just these passive beings, but they do have a mind of their own. And, and through these personal stories that the contributors share in the book, they show that plants have a really strong connection to humans. And our hope is that the book will bring readers closer to the mind of plants, understood again as a kind of an embodied and embedded form of being. And so it is not a mind that is abstract, like, like the human mind has been conceived for a long time, but is really a lived embodied mind that plants have and that we also share with plants. So the book helps us to see in which ways uh, we as humans are close to plants in the same way as, as we are, as Sarah just mentioned, very close uh, to animals as well. Uh, I don't know that I can add much to what um, has been said in, in response, but just that uh, it's it's really fun to talk about this book in particular on a panel with these three authors uh, devoted to the human and the non-human, um, because I think it's interesting in that question who also gets to be categorized in that category of human who has been included in that in the past um, and to put that in relation to you know, the, the stories of other animals and also, um, you know, earth and water and, and other things like that is something that I hope uh, readers will get from this collection of stories as well. Um, there's also like a, a pretty big through line of um, collecting and preservation and sort of natural history museums throughout this, this certain collection of stories that I have too. And so I'm interested in pushing on that and seeing how that's created the these categories of human, non-human, um, as, as they're shown to the rest of the world. Thank you all. I so appreciate those answers. And Heather, I think your question um, is a perfect follow-up um, for, for some of the words we've heard and some of what's appearing in the chat. So thank you. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I had pulled um, text from many of you and many of you just said the things that I was actually going to quote you on. So let's just keep the conversation going. Um, Cal, since you were just reading um, and then we're just speaking, I think I want to go a little bit further into Moonsnail. Um, and um, 
what an ex- I will say that I one of the things that I, has been overwhelming to me is just the beauty uh, of all of your writing. Um, but anyway, I'm going to um, just say a bit more that I read. This was actually from your um, from the edit the editor's note in um, your journal, Smoke and Mold. Um, but I love the quote: um, "Climate change and trans people." Both are realities difficult for the cis population to understand. Both involve patterns of change and regeneration not easily observable using the templates provided by cisgender and capitalist lives. I don't think amplifying trans writers will change that, but trans writers have been imagining new ways of living and writing for generations. Two spirit writers for much longer than that. Despite all this, the trans body is still subject to failure of imagination in the popular consciousness. The trans body is considered, and now I'm kind of repeating what you said, unnatural. It changes supposedly go against nature um, with few in mainstream literature, medicine, or history acknowledging that nature is nothing but change. And at the end of this uh, section, you say stories can disrupt a system, which I thought was so great. And in the moon snail, there's a moment that I really wanted to um, hear more about, and it's it's the, the, you know, the, the character of Gertrude um, is, you know, looking at this snail and she says she wanted to, or it, the, the prose says she wanted to slow down and think more about keratin, limestone, calcium, break it down piece by piece, like a moon snail drilling a hole in the shell of a smaller snail and flooding its caustic juices before slurping it all out. She would like to do that to the world around her, liquefy it until it bleeds together. And then later, she says uh, she, she wants to get inside of its geometry, part of its perfect equation. Um, she thinks maybe if she thinks hard enough, she can think, shrink her thoughts to fit. What I'm so fascinated by is moving things down to this very granular level. Um, and I'm wondering if this particular work of looking deeply and taking th- things down to their smallest particles um, is actually a way to build empathy. Because as you were saying in um, your earlier comments, that idea of, of taking things apart, but then reconstituting them, is that, do you think that's empathy building? Is that what, what is the, what do you think your objective is? Or, you know, just tell me more about that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Heather, for that um, close reading and, and bringing up the journal. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I think that looking closely like this way through through science, the history of science in this granular level is has been my way in to questions of empathy, particularly because as a white writer, not just a trans writer, um, it's been very important to me to read and listen and also cite a lot of the writers of color, especially indigenous writers that I read and internalize their ideas and it's important to me not to claim those specifically while still finding my own way into these issues so um, for me you know there are many writers and thinkers um, Kim Talbert is one who's thinking about genetics and indigenous sovereignty has really shaped a lot of my thinking about science and biology and its relationship to subjecthood um, Joshua Whitehead is somebody who writes in fiction uh, the the queer experience. And it's important to me to read those and understand them and not claim them and find my own way into thinking about issues that relate to the trans body um, that I think 
have been, I mean, the trans body has been under a microscope so intensely, especially in the last, you know, 15 years or so, or if not forever. Um, and so that has been that really, really close looking kind of the work of a naturalist has been my work uh, way into this subject fictionally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Well, and since you brought up um, indigenous um, knowing and knowledge, maybe I'll move actually to Patricia uh, because of the quote that I, I chose from you. Um, I was thinking about um, how in one of your interviews, you said that your work has been going in this direction, thinking about the perspectives of non-human beings and what do they bring us and how could this way of seeing change, you know, our way of being. And, but the excerpt that I chose from the book um, was by Luis Eduardo Luna. And what strikes me is that this is a, this is a different way of understanding and knowing plants. And, um, using this kind of knowledge, like what happens to, um, to us if we think this way? And the questions he asks are, um, now what kind of mind or minds am I tapping into? Do they directly have volition? He's talking about the plant. Is it the mind of the plants of higher intelligence permeating our planet? The mind of the planet itself, the solar system, the galaxy, the whole universe? If it is the mind of the plant, does she have an inner horizon limited to the history of her own individuality? Or does it include her parent plants, the whole species, or even a collective plant mind that stretches beyond time and space? Is she a self? What kind of self is she? And I think about um, when I hear this, I, I my mind is just expanded. But one of the other things I think about is the kind of limitation that I have is very much part of the Western, um, very recent um, history, right? And so I'm curious, Patricia, if you think at all about um, whether this kind of stretching um, is, you know, is, is this old thinking? Is it new thinking? Is it thinking that will create empathy now? Well, that's a great question. And um, I guess when we chose the, the name of the book, we struggled a bit with the word mind exactly because of that, because it has uh, sort of human-centered connotations. And what we wanted to do is to turn that around and think of the mind as something very broad and the human mind as one example of the kinds of minds that we find uh, in the world around us. So there are the minds of plants, animals also have minds, and maybe perhaps even non-living beings have a mind of their own. I mean, there is now uh, research into that, right? So uh, mind is something very broad. And then human minds, plant minds are just examples of what a mind can be. And, and this is actually even um, substantiated by recent uh, research on so-called plant signaling and behavior that shows that plants, you know, they can think, they can uh, make choices based on information that they get, they communicate with one another, and so on and so forth, right? And many of these scientific insights or Western scientific insights uh, were already uh, known by indigenous people, as you mentioned, right? And, and um, uh, Luis Eduardo Luna, uh, uh, he, he wrote on ayahuasca, so he... Uh, he um, uh, talks about plants uh, in indigenous communities as kind of teachers 
uh, of, of indigenous peoples. And many of those plants, they're teachers because they expand the human mind. So they open up the human mind. And we're talking here about mind-altering plants, as we call them. But for, for those indigenous people, they, they really see those plants as entry points into an expanded consciousness. And so uh, lots, several of the authors in the book, uh, they, uh, they have this um, approach uh, to indigenous communities. And we actually have at least one chapter that I remember. I mean, there's, there's 40 something of them, but there's at least one that is co-authored uh, by a member of an indigenous community and um, an anthropologist. And so I think that that's the one on peyote, for instance. And so uh, there is uh, this idea that uh, through plants, you can unlearn what you thought was the human mind and think of the mind in, in broader terms that would include not only the human mind, but also the minds of animals and the minds of plants. And I think we have a lot to learn from indigenous communities about that, because that's something they already knew, but that's that we as as Western scholars and thinkers have kind of repressed throughout the development of, of our so-called civilization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. That's wonderful. Um, and it actually is an amazing bridge to what I wanted to ask Amy. Um, so uh, in thinking about what she was saying about teachers, I, I remember reading um, an interview with you that said that when you were a little girl, you mostly read science books. Um, and this is what you said. You said, um, as I was reading these nature and science books, I found myself accidentally, question mark, placing narratives on these creatures and plants, anthropomorphizing them entirely, so that when I did start to read literature, the way I knew how to make sense of human action, interactions was indeed through the vocabulary of the natural world by default. In other words, my language from metaphor and making connections to the natural world and human relationships is really not anything I had to work at, but rather how I've always seen the world since I was a little girl. And I just, I, I'm so aware that your work is studied with all these gems of scientific fact, like mig migrating butterflies that take a turn in the middle of a lake. And uh, the, um, th the fact that the snake has a heart that can slide up and down its body, right? Um, incredible. But also what I notice is that in these stories, and this goes to this teaching uh, aspect, it's the, the wonderful facts about these animals, but they also become like subjects of a parable or a fable often. Um, so like in the um, axolotl story, um, you know, the, the little girl is experiencing, for those of you who haven't read it, the little girl is experiencing um, uh, some uh, stereotyping and, and has received unkindness because of the color of her skin. And quickly we go to the axolotl who has has the ability to have its limbs cut off over and over and they grow back and they grow back and they're resilient but what happens at the very end um amy says uh that nature has a way of giving us a heads up to stand back and admire them at a distance or behind a glass an axolotl's four legs don't end with sweet millennial pink stars they are claws Amy, tell us a little bit about this movement between um, animals in their, you know, in their wholeness, in their, their wonderful being, their miraculous state, but also being teachers. How, how, did, how do you navigate that in your writing? Yeah, you know, it's not something, thank you so much. That's such a beautiful question um, and really kind of gets to the core, kind of the cross section of this book. Um, 
in that, you know, I'm here now in the South. I still feel somewhat new, although this is my fifth year here. And there's a Southern saying, you catch more flies with honey. You know, yeah. so I, I definitely, I didn't have that in mind when I was writing the book, but I see that, you know, this happens in my class. I think many of us here are, are educators. You can recognize this. When we want to shift thinking, I find, at least for me and, and my presence in the classroom, is to kind of point students towards something that they might care about, that they might, in fact, fall in love with first. Mm -hmm. And I think when you get students um, caring about, oh, there's there's a, a, a field of birds, you know, sitting, you know, sitting on the ground. No, but when they get to know that it's a yellow warbler and you get mm -hmm. to know that the name, the bird call of the yellow warbler is the word sweet, 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 sweet. Those college students, I promise you, will never forget that bird when we all go out and, you know, make bird calls to each other, you know, that kind of thing. They have that tenderness. They get to know, they get to um, put a name to animals that they would just be walking by on campus, you know, that kind of thing. So my hope is that uh, and again, it was very purposeful that I chose animals that I was hoping people would have a lot of familiarity with, with monarch butterfly, um, as well as animals like the cassowary, which I've never seen before, which is a, you know, an animal that can, a uh, bird that can kill humans because of its giant middle claw. Um, and it's only found in New Zealand. Um, but there's a tenderness with the cassowary too. It's usually depicted, there's no stuffed cassowaries that you can cuddle, you know, that kind of thing. Nobody wears really shirts, unless you're a bird nerd that has a cassowary on it. You know, they're kind of a traditionally ugly bird. It's royal blue and it's got like a giant turkey waddle kind of thing. And it's black. It looks like it's got black hideous fur on it instead of feathers. And they're dead. They're terrifying. Uh, to me, they are an actual living dinosaur. If you, do, if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, look, look them up to get a visual. But what I found so amazing about the cassowary is that, uh, many things, many things, but one in particular is that their sound, their call to each other, you actually, human ear can't really hear it. You actually can, it's so low, it registers lower than what most humans can hear. So it becomes like a boom, like a boom in your body. Like you could feel, like you could be walking in a forest or at the edge of a shoreline. And if you feel like a boom, 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 that's the cassowary coming towards you. So you should be running away or at least um, being more alert, you know, that kind of, and I love that feeling, feeling it in your bones. And that's kind of how we all as educators, uh, there's so much science I know, and I'm not a scientist and there's books that are written by scientists that should be praised and read for sure. But there's that unseen part of why we should be fighting for animals and plants. And it's that I feel it with my bones that we should care about these things. And for me, that was, again, that was the that was the metaphor that I came up with was not knowing how to exactly find the science behind it or not, not necessarily knowing the exact words of science behind it, but feeling it in your bones that you should be caring about this kind of hideous looking bird, mm -hmm. as well as the cute, so-called cute axolotl that looks like it has a smile on its face, but it's one of the messiest eaters mm -hmm. on this planet. It is kind of revolting when it eats live worms and its claws come out, you know, even though it looks so sweet and pink with the, I'm anthropomorphizing the smile. Um, 
And I think that's what, that's how humans are. You know, that's how humans are. We think in poems, we think in metaphors, we dream in metaphors and poems. So why not use that language to get people caring about plants and animals? Why not think back to the language that we, we used as kids? Um, In April, I usually get called into kids' classrooms to teach poetry for National Poetry Month. And you know this. I mean, kids are the best metaphor makers out there. Something something happens. And, you know, they can rival my MFA students. Something happens in middle school or high school where they're taught it's not cool anymore to make metaphors when they're exclaiming over something. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of books out there about warnings and things that we should be careful about. I wanted my book to be turning towards wonder and to remember that four-year-old and as that exclaimed and said, look, 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 you know, a a kid not too long ago that I taught um, a first grader, I didn't know this at the time, but his, he lost his mother um, from cancer and he, you know, I was teaching them metaphor, how to, how to explain how they feel. And instead of saying, I feel sad, I get choked up thinking about this. He said, I'll never forget. He said, I carry two clouds in my pocket. Um, and I just like, how, how would you not want to go back to that language again? You know what I mean? So, ah, oh, sorry, I get choked up thinking about this little kid, but it just shows like, I wanted us to, I wrote this book in 2016 as my, as my um, response to hatred um, and trying to explain it to my six and nine-year-old kids. And I wanted to use the language that I love and that is metaphor. So um, I don't, I'm not a scientist. I know there's going to be some ornithologists out there that say that's not exactly what a yellow warbler sounds like, but you know what? My students all love the yellow warbler now. Um, And I put money over marbles that, that happened because we all went out there and used metaphor to call the birds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And you're right. I mean, the, the thing about poetry is that it lifts, lifts the pedestrian, language to another level um, that can hold some of these things that we often can't quite hold. This, I love the two clouds. Oh my gosh. Oh my Thank gosh. You. I know. I'm sorry. I'm That's such a dork, right. but I just think of, I cannot forget that statement. And that's nobody, I didn't teach him that. You know what I mean? Like he came up with that on his own. I can't take credit for that. That's kids naturally finding language Mm -hmm. to process hard, difficult feelings, you know? And I think about that kid at least once a week, you know, and I just want to protect him with all my might, you know? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, so thinking about poetry, it's the perfect time to move to Sarah and your work. Um, The, um, The quote that I was actually going to use of yours was the one that you read, which was about your manuscript um, wanting to um, use the human as a meddler, a tinkerer, a destroyer, a killer, as well as a rehabilitator and a steward. Um, And you say in there that you are concerned about reimagining our planetary citizenship Um, And one of the things that you said in your comments is that the way that to do that is in part in embodiment. So maybe you can say a bit about that. Um, But I do want to read this little section of a poem called Superstitions of a Naturalist. And I think that what's interesting is that there is a bit of warning here, right? Um, It's said if you trifle with a chrysalis, your child will be as stunted as a chaste tree. Aphids will infest her dreams. Kill an orchard orb weaver and a riot of mosquitoes will fill up on your flesh, 
Worse still, put the wings of a spice bush swallowtail and every meal will taste stale for a year. Um, this is, I mean, that's terrifying stuff, right? But what I find is that what you've done is um, you are really, you, you are really making it pointed that, that we have a choice, right? That this is, there will be repercussions. I just wanted to, to invite you to talk a little bit about, about how you are planning to achieve this um, reimagining planet, planetary citizenship through your poetry, um, maybe with warning or maybe with uh, the embodiment that you also, that you talked about earlier. Yeah, thank you for that great question, Heather. And, um, you know, I, I think um, I can just kind of follow some of the things that Amy was just saying, you know, I, I, I'm filled with despair and anxiety about the, um, about climate change and the ecological crisis. But um, there's also, I think, great joy that um, Amy's um, writing recalls me to. Um, joy and grief can live side by side. Um, and, uh, you know, my work with animals as a rehabilitator, I think has taught me a lot about the ways in which culture and nature interface. Um, we tend to think about culture and nature traditionally in a Western world as uh, dichotomous, but, um, you know, animals contribute to culture. I, I know that when I was writing my dissertation, um, I took a lot of breaks watching Meerkat Manor and reminding myself about the ways in which meerkats have fairly sophisticated cultural roles. Um, some act as sentries, some act as caretakers. Um, and, you know, we, we need to be reminded of the ways in which animals and the environment um, contribute to our, our, our culture, uh, can be part of the poetic process. So there, there is wonder, and I think there is joy in that. Um, yeah, I mean, with uh, questions of embodiment, you know, I there's never a complete transparency between consciousnesses and especially between the human and animal. Um, but I think that, um, you know, having um, some basis in scientific knowledge, doing our research, um, grounding in facts, but also um, perhaps at times highlighting the constructedness of my imaginings. So Superstitions of a Naturalist is one of those poems that I think does that. Like, how can I encourage a deconstructive re reading strategy or how can I um, highlight the ways in which this is really a, um, a product of the human Im imagination? Mm -hmm. um, so that I'm not simply like appropriating an animal experience and calling it my own, right? So um, yeah, and, and finally, I think there's also um, great joy in seeing the animals around me, such as the ones that I, I work with, um, acting as readers and interpreters of the world around them. Um, you know, so uh, I, I learn a lot from the crow, the cranky crow that I work with, um, who's always kind of putting me in my place and, and um, like very attuned to the world around him. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, these animals help me to think about agency and about um, humility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, beautiful, beautiful answers, my goodness. Um, so, uh, Laura, uh, do, have you been noticing the um, questions in the chat? Do we have any time for questions in the chat from the we chat? Have. 
We are right up against our time limit. Um, so there are some wonderful comments and questions in the chat. Um, and I will um, maybe not take those, but rather ask our panelists if there is anything you would like to leave us with as a, as a closing thought. Um, and we'll go, we'll go around in whatever order you all would like. Um, but encourage you, if you have not been reading the chat, um, there's some vibrant discussion there. I just wanted to thank Asley for, um, I don't want to speak for my panelists, but I, this has been the most, I just wanted to say, I would be remiss if I didn't. This has been the most diverse environmental panel I've ever been a part of. I'm so grateful that Asley is doing this. I couldn't even have imagined this 20 years ago. Um, most of the syllabi, actually all of the syllabi I encountered, I never had a GLBTQ author on it, certainly never a brown person on it. I would have loved to have seen various responses to the outdoors. Um, and my white husband would be the first person to say he would have wanted to see more responses than, than the syllabi he had when he was a um, an undergrad and, and grad student as well. So thank you so much. And I would just say um, to the educators out there, please, as you're coming up with your syllabi um, coming up, please do think of including diverse voices. Students need to hear from the GLBTQ community. They need to see Latinx. They need to see Asian Americans, African Americans, Native Americans, first and foremost. Um, please don't hit print on your syllabi if you don't have a Native American writer on there. Um, and I, I just, thank you so much to Asley because you've done so much work in making this such a vibrant um, organization. Um, and it wasn't the case, I don't think, uh, a few, none, you know, a, a decade ago, a 20 years ago. So thank you, Asley. Thank you so much, Amy. We're honored by your words and, um, and very much appreciate that and um, echo your call to educators to, to be attentive to the voices around them. I'll just echo what Amy said. Um, thank you. This has been a wonderful panel. Um, it's really an honor for me to be able to be in conversation with all of you. Um, many of you are my my teachers, and um, you know I've been thinking alongside your writing. So I I appreciate this opportunity so much. Thank you, Sarah, so much. Yeah, just just jumping in to agree, and and that it's so great to get to talk with all of you. And I always, I, I'm excited to leave this session with more things to read and think about uh, and, and write about for myself uh, in response to many of you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Cal. Yeah, again, I would like to thank all the participants and to thank Asli for this opportunity. And it was great that we were together here to think about animals and also plants, not just as these uh, backgrounds to our lives or even as you know kind of passive beings that are just there or often we think of them as victims of the Anthropocene and it was it's really nice to see us thinking about animals and plants as having really an agency and and the will and the desire of their own and it's I think it's wonderful if we could translate that into a, a more practical uh, connection to animals and plants so that's I think the hope I, I have for for the work of all of us here together that that this would then um, kind of have repercussions in uh, in life outside of Zoom and that we would all uh, begin to see our uh, companions on, on the planet in a different way. 
Thank you so much, Patricia. I appreciate that um, response and, and your call to, to, to leave Zoom and go into the world with, with the gift of today. Heather, um, any closing words from you? So appreciate those um, really rich questions. The texture of them was fantastic and helpful for our discussion. Thank you very much. I'm so honored to be here. I guess what I want to make sure is that in the chat somehow there's a way for all of the participants to order these books. <laughs> these amazing people wrote. So um, just to make sure that, that they're in there. I haven't been able to read through anything because we've been talking. But um, anyway, yeah, buy these books. They're amazing. And um, <laughs> thank you all for, for being here today. Thank you all. We will um, make the recording. Oh, the chat's preserved and um, links to the books are dropped in there. So if you want to grab them, I won't sign us off. Um, if you would like to grab any of the comments um, or the links right away and know that they'll be coming soon. We hope to see you at our next event in just about one month from now um, in April. And uh, look forward to having many, many more wonderful conversations like the one today. Thank you. Cannot thank you enough um, for, the, for the time you've spent together with us as a community. Thank you.